Hello and welcome to this new podcast called Understanding Christianity. I am Sean Cole and I am a pastor in Sterling, Colorado at Emanuel Baptist Church. I'm also an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. I teach Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology, church history, ethics, a lot of those types of classes. I'm also working on getting my doctorate in expository preaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And so I just want to welcome you to this new podcast. And let me just kind of explain the purpose of why why we're doing this. First of all, we really just want to have an opportunity to share with a wider audience the claims of Christianity. There are a lot of good podcasts out there that deal with issues related to current events, either in the world of different religions um, or in the world of Christianity. Uh, For example, Dr. James White at Alpha and Omega Ministries. Uh, His podcast is one that I regularly listen to, and he does a great job in the field of apologetics, uh, dealing with Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Roman Catholics. He's a great defender of the faith, and I cannot even begin to attempt to do the types of things he does. And so if you're looking for a podcast that deals more with um, someone who's excellent in the field of apologetics and defending the Christian faith, um, I would recommend Dr. James White, aomen.org, Alpha and Omega Ministries. Another great podcast that deals with issues related to what's going on in the world um, is Dr. Al Mohler's podcast. Um, Dr. Albert Moeller is the president of the seminary I attend, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, he's a brilliant man who has a daily podcast called The Briefing, Uh, that you can check out and he deals with issues all across the map and again he's a brilliant man I could not even begin to uh, do the things that he does and so there's a lot of different pastors that I listen to a lot of different um, podcasts that I try to tune into and again I'm not trying to be those types of things because I can't, obviously, because those, those men are, are, are excellent in the field in which they, they minister. What I want to do is really just be a source of encouragement to, first of all, a Christian audience. I just want to basically teach or educate or encourage Christians in the faith. What are the fundamentals of Christianity? What is it that we believe? And so we're going to be going to the scriptures and specifically looking at things related to the foundations of the faith of Christianity as a way to encourage you as a Christian audience in what you believe and why you believe it. But I also have another aim. I also want to have friendly dialogue and engagements with those that may not embrace Christianity. Maybe for some strange reason you're listening to this podcast and you have either no clue about Christianity or maybe you're vehemently opposed to Christianity or maybe you're you're searching and you want some questions answered and you're, you're really not sure about Christianity. I want this to be a safe place for maybe you to come and just listen and, and hear what, what we have to say about the claims of Christianity Um, We'd love to interact with you if you ever call us on the phone um, or interact with email. Um, The office number, the best way to reach me if you actually want to call in is uh, area code 970-522-1440. Or you can email me at Sean, that's S-E-A-N, Sean, at E-B-C, 
www.dash-online.org. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to interact with you. And so we just want this podcast just to be kind of a an informative, educational, encouraging type of message that you'll be able to hear the truths of Christianity. One of the things that I may do from time to time on this podcast is I may include some of the sermons that I preach on Sunday morning, but probably most of the content is going to be really some teachings that I've done on our Wednesday night classes at church that are a little bit more in-depth, that go more into an explanation of some of the things of Christianity. I may also include some of the information that I do in my Colorado Christian University classes that I record. And so there might be a variety of things. We may interact with some things that are going on in Christianity today. And so really the name of this podcast is called Understanding Christianity. And we want that to be really what what helps you to understand the truths of Christianity, to have a relationship with Christ, to understand what the gospel is, to understand how it is that a person has a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone as the only way to God. And so in this first podcast, what we're going to do is we're going to actually bring in a teaching that I did um, on a Wednesday night class that was called The Foundations of the Faith. And this lesson or this um, teaching is really on the nature of Scripture. What does the Bible say about itself? And so I want you just to listen and enjoy this. And again, this is our first podcast, Understanding Christianity, but we want to start with a proper understanding of the Bible because everything that we believe as Christians has to go back to the authority of the Bible. It's not something that we make up. It's not something that we say, hey, this is my opinion, or hey, I think. No, the, the perspective, the worldview that I'm coming from in this podcast, Understanding Christianity, the worldview that I operate under, how I live my life is I believe in the absolute authority, the absolute inerrancy, and the absolute inspiration and sufficiency of the scriptures to dictate what we believe and to dictate how we live under its authority. So any discussion about Christianity has to start with how God has revealed himself through the scriptures. So let's join in on a teaching that I did called, What Exactly Is the Bible? Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You guys came to back after we did the teachings of Jesus to talk about foundations of the faith versus world religions and cults and there's different ways we could go about doing this i could like say okay tonight we're talking about mormons and next week we're talking about jehovah's witness and next week we're talking about islam and next week we're talking about hindus and next week we're talking about buddhists and next week we're talking about oprah or i don't know whatever you want to pick um I, i thought you know i could do it like that or i could say what are the What are the key foundations or the key doctrines or the key teachings of the Bible that um, we as Orthodox, historic, evangelical Christians believe? 
And let's focus on those first, and then we'll see what the other groups believe about that. Okay, so you guys remember my little dogma doctrine preferences drawing. Some of you have been around a long time, have seen this. If not, if this is like the 18th time you've seen it, just pretend like you've never seen it before. You'll see it again. Dogma are those absolute essentials that we have to believe in order to be a Christian. The absolute essentials. That, that Regardless of your denomination, this is what orthodox, historic, Bible-believing Christians believe. Doctrines are secondary matters that are very, very important, but you have denominations that divide over doctrines. For example, um, like Presbyterians sprinkle and we dunk. Charismatics speak in tongues, we don't. Different views on the end times, those types of things. Okay? Preferences are, I like the King James Bible, I like the NIV, I like blue carpet, I like green carpet, I like a praise band, I like drums, I like choir, I like, it's preferences. What we're really dealing with here is dogma. What are the dogma, and we may get into a few doctrines, but what are the dogma that we believe, because every cult and every world religion is going to deny a major dogma of the faith. It's just which one they're going to do. Okay, And there's a lot of different places we could start tonight. We could start with God. We could start with Jesus. We could start with salvation. We could start with the nature of man. We could start with heaven or hell. But I thought the most important place to start is the Bible. Because what you believe about the Bible determines everything else that you believe. So we've got to start with our understanding of the Bible. Let's just stop and let's talk about, let me, let me teach you guys a term here. I'm, I'm like really deviating from my notes. I haven't gotten to my notes yet. So your handout, we're not there yet. This is all introduction. I'm going to write a term up here that hopefully you've maybe heard of. You may not know what it means, but maybe you've heard of sola scriptura, or that's the Latin way. It's called scripture alone. This came about during the Protestant Reformation when the Roman Catholic Church was elevating their teachings above the Bible, saying the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church are on par, and what the Pope says is, is even more important than what the Bible says. And the Protestant Reformers came along and said, no, what we believe is that Scripture alone is the sole authority for what we believe. There's no other document. There's no other council. There's no other synod. There's no other person. We believe the Scripture alone. Okay, now, Mormons, for example, do not believe in Scripture alone. What do the Mormons believe? They have the Book of Mormon, and they have the Doctrines and the Covenants, and they've got the Pearl of Great Price, and they've got what the Prophet says down to the Council of Twelve that comes about, okay? Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a corrupt translation. We'll talk about this a little bit later on tonight. They have a corrupt translation of the Bible. Uh, They have their own version called the Watchtower Version, okay? Islam, they will use the Bible in their teachings, but they also use it along with the Quran. Okay? Hinduism, they don't use the Bible. <laughs> they, they've got the, um, what's it called, Bogata Vida, I think is their sacred writing, and a bunch of other weird stuff. Um, so anyway, we as Bible-believing Christians have to start with Scripture alone is the sole authority. Okay, so let's start with what the Scripture says about itself. So let's turn to um, 2 Timothy 3.16, and let's just read what the Bible says about itself. Because I'm going to show you two very important passages of Scripture that the Bible attests to its own authority. 
So 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Some of the scripture, is that what your Bible says? Some of you aren't there yet. I'll wait till you guys get there. 2 Timothy 3.16. You guys tell me, how does, your, how does it start? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete Equip for every good work. All Scripture. Now, it's important that we define terms here. Obviously, we know what the word all means, right? What does all mean? All. Scripture. Now, what is Scripture? The Greek words used there is the word graphe, which means the writings, the actual product the writing that we have the scriptures the the texts that are written not just the spoken word but the actual product the end product the the actual written word of god so what would be all scripture at this point in time when paul's writing is the new testament completed no it's in the process of being written but now do we have a completed scripture okay so what would be all scripture all the written scripture from genesis to revelation all that written scripture, what's been written in the scriptures, is breathed out by God. Some of your translations may say inspired. And we're going to look at the different theories of inspiration here in a moment. But the actual term used in the scripture is a Greek term. It's a compound word that means God breathed. That's why I think the NIV uses God breathed. The ESV uses breathed out by God. It literally means every word of the scriptures, the written scriptures, is breathed out by God. Now, how did this happen? Well, let's turn to 1 Peter 1, 20-21. And it tells us not in a lot of detail, but it tells us somewhat... Actually, 2 Peter, that's a misprint. 2 Peter. Sorry. So... 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture, all the written Scripture, all the written Word of God from Genesis to Revelation is breathed out by God. It's God-breathed. 2 Peter 1.20-21 says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what is the origin of the Scripture? Is it the product of man? Did, did man just say, I'm going to come up with my own interpretation and just kind of write this? No, it says it didn't happen that way. What happened? Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote down exactly what God wanted them to write down. So let's talk about some of these theories that different people throughout the years have tried to um, maybe explain how this happened, okay? And all of these are wrong except for one, okay? So we'll, I'll tell you which one's, which one's right. We're going to do all the wrong ones first. Okay, the first one is called the intuition theory. The intuition theory says basically... You know, the writers of the scriptures were literary geniuses like Shakespeare, and they just had natural religious ability, 
And uh, they were just great thinkers, and they could just come up with this stuff just because they were really, really smart guys. Does anybody buy that view? They just had the religious intuition to write Scripture because they were religious geniuses. Okay, what do we know about Peter? (laughs) Was he a religious genius, or was he a fisherman that got in trouble a lot? Okay, all right. So we can probably reject that one. The other view that some people have is illumination. This is the idea that the Holy Spirit just heightened the normal powers of the writers by giving them increased sensitivity and perceptivity. Now, this brings the Holy Spirit into it and says that these guys were already pretty smart and they were already pretty in tune. The Holy Spirit just came along and kind of just gave them a little bit of a boost, just kind of helped them along a little bit, kind of just heightened their natural abilities that were already there. Okay? Not good enough. It brings the Holy Spirit in, but not good enough. The next one brings the Holy Spirit in, but doesn't quite go far enough. The dynamic. The Spirit of God works by directing the writer to the thoughts or concepts and allowing the writer's own distinctive personality to come into play in the choice of words and expressions. Now, at first glance, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? But notice what it says. It only goes to the thoughts or the concepts. So there's some artistic license and liberty. Like this view says the Holy Spirit gave them the thought and they took it the rest of the way and kind of put it in their own words. Okay, the thought, the dynamic version. Okay, all right, the dictation version. This is the little parrot on your shoulder or the courtroom stenographer. This is where God actually dictated the Bible to the writers like a little bird on the shoulder or a courtroom stenographer telling the writer exactly what to say. So it'd be like Peter sitting there writing and God said, ba 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 like in his ear, write it down, in his ear. And it was like just this mechanical God spoke, and Peter wrote it down exactly, bypassing human personality, bypassing any type of um, cultural or, um, or personality issues. So what is the, probably the most biblical one we can hold to? It's called verbal plenary. Now, you guys may not know what the word... What does the word verbal mean? What does the word verbal mean? Spoken. Okay. So, so spoken or audible. Does anybody know what plenary means? Sometimes you go to a plenary session. Plenary means the totality of, the full of. So when we say verbal plenary, we're saying that the totality of Scripture is God-breathed. And here's what it says. The Holy Spirit's influence extends beyond just the direction of thoughts to the actual selection of the grammar used to convey the message. God so mysteriously superintended the process that every word written was also the exact word he wanted to be written free from all error. This view says it goes beyond thoughts and concepts to the actual word, to the grammar. Why do you think people do word studies? And why do we look so important at the Greek grammar? Is it the aorist tense? Is it the imperfect tense? Is it the perfect tense? Is it the present tense? 
why do we look at all that stuff? If that stuff doesn't matter, what we're saying is the Bible down to the actual exact wording. So let me ask you a question. Are, are words important in the scriptures? What's the difference between... Well, I, I've used this example before. Turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We, we've done this. I think we've done this before in this class. Actually, look at verse um, 25. Romans 3.25. And I want all the different translations to, to tell me what words used there. Now, if you have the ESV... Raise your hand. If you have the NIV, raise your hand. Okay? If you have the New American Standard, raise your hand. No NASBs here. New King James. Okay? King James. Any other translation? Good news for modern man. The living translate. All right. Okay. So the, the ESV, and I will tell you this, the ESV, the New American Standard, and the New King James and probably the Holman Christian Standard Bible are all going to use one word. The NIV or the New Living Translation are going to use a different word. And I will tell you why when we get to translations at the end of the class. But let me read it in the ESV. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Who all has propitiation as the word in there? The NIV should say atoning sacrifice with a footnote that says, does it say atoning sacrifice or sacrifice of atonement? Sacrifice of atonement. Does it have a footnote down there to say to turn aside God's wrath? Okay, so what the NIV has done, the NIV has not used the Greek word propitiation because most people today don't know what propitiation means. Okay. But that's the actual Greek word, propitiation. What the NIV has done is it's, it's used a concept, the thought, and it's put a footnote to define it. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that in the NIV doing that. It's a modern translation to help you understand what that concept is. But what is there a reason why in the Greek text there is the word propitiation? It means something. Um, and so what I'm just saying is, is that the view that we hold to is that every word in the scriptures down to its grammar and everything is inspired. It's God-breathed, which leads to another question. If it is God-breathed, every word of it, let me introduce you to another term called inerrancy. And here's the question. Does the Bible contain any errors? Up until about the mid-1600s, all Christians affirm that the Bible had no errors. Then during the age of the Renaissance and the age of the Enlightenment, people started questioning the Bible. And then really within the last 50 years, there's been a major debate. Our, I don't know if you guys know, our denomination almost split over this issue. In 1979, there was a huge, it was called the conservative resurgence, where... Bible-believing Christians that believed the Bible was free from error actually started getting more into power in the Southern Baptist Convention. The seminary that I go to right now, that I'm getting my doctoral at, Southern, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, in the 1980s, 
they, almost all their professors would not affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. They would say the Scripture has errors, the Scripture can't be trusted, and Jesus may not be the only way of salvation. And that changed. That was the way our denomination was going in the 70s and 80s until it, it changed. And so thankfully now it's gone the exact other way. So inerrancy is an issue. So let's, let's define terms here, okay? Yes? Right. Way overboard to the to the errancy side. Okay, we're we're gonna get there. Okay. Like, are you talking about like is the apocrypha inspired, or are you talking about like the no, Book I'm of Mormon? Talking about like the Jehovah's Witness Bible. No, like not even that. I'm saying some of the um, like Cotton Patch version. Or <laughs> have you ever read the Cotton Patch version? The Cotton Patch version is all, is an interesting translation. It takes place in Atlanta instead of Jerusalem, and it's all like Southern slang, and it's really weird. Um, Oh, like the King James versus the yeah. The new internet. Oh, the the TN the new internet. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about that. We're going to get to translations okay. hopefully tonight by the end of the, the t- yeah. So let's just talk about inerrancy, okay? This is a term you need to know. This means that the Bible is completely truthful in all the things the Bible asserts. Okay, so whether it's geographic, chronological, or theological. Okay, so are there chronological errors in the Bible, which would be like dating things? No. Are there geographical errors or archaeological errors? No. Are there theological errors? Okay. Now, are there some things that the Bible doesn't assert? Does the Bible tell you how to fix a flat tire? No. Does the Bible tell you how to do quantum physics? Does the Bible tell you how to shoot a free throw? Okay. So there are some things the Bible doesn't address, but in everything that it addresses, everything that's there, it's inerrant. Now, there's another term that you need to be aware of because this is where the battle was really waged, especially in our denomination, over wording. The, when I went to college, okay, when I went to, I went to Baylor University in the first semester of my freshman year, and this was in 1990. This was in the hotbed of all the stuff that was going on. Now Baylor's barely even a Baptist. I mean, it's not even really a Baptist school anymore. When, I, when you went to Baylor... Here's the question. Normally when you're a freshman at college, what, like if you go off to college, what's the question most people ask you when you're new? What's your major? What's your major? They didn't ask you that. Here's the question they asked you. Are you a fundamentalist or are you a moderate? What, I'm like, what do you mean a fundamentalist or a moderate? What, what, what does that mean? They're like, well, I said, ask me what you mean by that. Well, do you believe the Bible is inerrant or do you believe the Bible has mistakes? And I said, well, obviously it's inerrant. Well, you're a fundamentalist. Okay, I guess I am. And so anyway, but what they would say is we believe in infallibility. Here's the difference. Infallibility is a lesser view of error, of inerrancy. It sees the Bible is infallible or error-free only in matters of faith or theology. You see the difference? So the Bible can contain errors in geography. It can contain errors like, for example, it would say Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a fish. That's just a metaphor. But theologically, we know God is love. So that's, that's inerrant. Or salvation by grace, that's inerrant because that's theology. But, you know, the, 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 the Red Sea parting, I'll tell you, my Old Testament class at Baylor, 
there were people there with tape recorders recording the professors to get them in trouble. And, and the professor basically stood up. I'd never been exposed to this stuff before. I mean, I grew up in a church that was conservative, Bible-believing. And the professor's like, well, you guys know that it wasn't really the Red Sea that the Israelites crossed. It was called the Sea of Reeds. It was a little marsh, a little swampy marsh. And they just kind of walked through, you know, like puddled through marsh. And, you know, it wasn't, they didn't split on both sides. And, you know, that's, that's a myth. They just kind of walked across the marsh. And one kid raised his hand and said, well, that's, that's even more of a miracle. Because God drowned all the Egyptians in their chariots in a marsh. And the professor went, like he, he, was, he was stymied. So infallibility would say, yeah, we believe the Bible's true only in matters of faith and theology. Everything else is up for grabs. That's a lesser view. That's the view we don't hold at this church. That's a lesser view. Um, inspiration, we, we've kind of already seen that. There's different views of inspiration. Um, neo-orthodoxy, we're not going to talk about that. That's Karl Barth in the 1920s and 60s. It sometimes rears its head. Some people will say this, well, why are we using the word inerrancy? The word inerrancy doesn't show up in the Bible. Why don't you use a biblical word like trustworthy? The Bible's trustworthy. And that's good um, because inerrancy is not used in the Bible, but the word trustworthy is. But here's the reason. The modern debate has forced us to use precise vocabulary when defining this because you can see the difference between inerrancy and infallibility. If you just say the Bible's trustworthy, well, what do you mean? I can go up to a Mormon today and say, do you believe the Bible's trustworthy? What do you think they'd say? Is anybody out there that's, that's unless they're like a full-blown atheist or skeptic, are most quote-unquote people that claim to be Christians going to question the trustworthiness of the Bible? It's just to what degree do you, do you question it? That, that's the real issue. Do you believe in verbal plenary that every word down to the very grammar is inspired by God and he did it in such a way that what we have is an error-free scripture? Okay? Let's just look at some scriptures here that, that talk about this. Um, Numbers chapter twenty-three, nineteen. God is... I'll just read it to you because I don't think it's on your sheet. God is not a man that he should lie... Or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Can God lie? No. Psalm, Psalm 12.6, The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. The Chicago statement of inerrancy is maybe something you guys might want to go look at. I'm not, I didn't bring it in here, but it was really, really helpful. Walt Kaiser was he's an Old Testament theologian that was really burdened in the 70s about this whole, this thing kind of came to the head in the 70s. So he invited like R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer and some of the top names in evangelical circles and a lot of scholars together in the, in the mid to late 70s to, to, to come out with a statement to define what inerrancy is across denominational lines. And so in 1978, they came out with what's called the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, which to this day is the standard um, document that um, Bible-believing, like, for example, when I, I teach classes at Colorado Christian University, I have to sign off on the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy saying that I agree with it. Um, and so it's kind of like the litmus test that a lot of evangelical, like, you know, if you're going to serve or you're going to be a professor or you're going to be in some type of leadership position, do you hold to the Chicago Statement? 
And so you can Google it or whatever, but it just really defines in great detail what we're talking about here. But I didn't want to bore you with all that because it's more of a historical document. Um, let's talk about this, though, qualifications of inerrancy, because this is where it gets a little bit um, difficult. Inerrancy applies only to the original autographs, not the copies. Now, let me just t- teach you guys a word. Um, when you guys think of autograph, what do you think of? I want to get your autograph, like signing an autograph. That's the technical word for the original copies of Scripture. They're called autographs. And by the way, we don't have any existing autographs of the Bible, original. All we have are copies, okay? So you've got the originals. We'll talk about this in a minute. And you've got copies. Inerrancy only applies to the originals, which would be what Paul actually wrote on the parchment. Okay? Because sometimes things may have gotten miscopied. And this is where people like the Da Vinci Code people and Bart Ehrman and um, the History Channel, they're going to try to debunk Christianity and debunk the Bible by saying, yeah, the originals may be inerrant, but the copies we have today, they're all they're false and you can't trust them and, and you, know, you can't really believe what we have today. The product that you have today in your hand is not a trustworthy Bible. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Inerrancy also, also, inerrancy respects the authorial intent of the passage and literary conventions under which the author wrote. Let me teach you guys a term, and I've, ta- I've talked about this before, and if this is repeat, just act like you've never heard it. Um, there's two ways you can approach Scripture. One is called authorial intent, and the other is called reader response. Reader response is the liberal, emergent, this is what you're going to be exposed to in any college that you go to. Basically, reader response basically says, I don't care what the original author meant. What's most important is what does this mean to me? Authorial intent says the author had a purpose in writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He knew exactly what he meant, and our job is to find out what he meant, not to kind of figure out what it means to us. Reader response puts us in the driver's seat to determine meaning. Authorial intent says there is a meaning, and we've just got to discover what the meaning is based upon what the author. If we had the author here. So, for example, you know, when you go to a literature class in college and you read Shakespeare and you write a paper on Shakespeare, how are they going to teach you today? Reader response. What, is, what does Shakespeare mean to you? Well, that may have meant no- what you came up with may have been nothing that Shakespeare meant. If you had Shakespeare in the room and you asked him, what did you mean by that in Romeo and Juliet? And he would say, it meant this. And you said, no, I think it meant this. He'd say, you're stupid. You're crazy. That's not what I meant. When I wrote it, that's what I meant. When Paul wrote it, that's what he meant. So one of the worst things that we can do is sit around in a circle during a Bible study and go around and say, what does this passage mean to you? Now, there's nothing wrong with application, but let me just ask you a question. Whether you exist or not, does that passage have a meaning? Did it have a meaning 2,000 years before you were born? Now, that passage can apply to you, and that passage can speak to you, but that passage has a meaning whether you're alive or not or whether you have the right meaning or not. That passage has a meaning. 
So our job is to determine the author's intent. And that's what inerrancy does. So those that hold to inerrancy say, our job is to determine what the author meant. Those that don't hold to inerrancy say, we can just sit around and figure out what we want to believe. The emergent church, the liberal emergent church that you kind of hear about today, here's what they would say. All right, let's, let's do a little scenario here. This group of the room, you guys are a church. You men on the back row, you're an all-men church. You guys over here, you're a church. And you're all churches in the same town. And all of you are studying the same scripture. And you guys come up with interpretation A. You guys come up with interpretation B. You guys come up with interpretation C. And that's okay because there's no real right interpretation. It's whatever our group believes is good for us. If you guys come up with that for you guys, that's cool for you. If you guys come up with your own interpretation, that's cool for you. We've, this is kind of works for us, and so this is the way we're interpreting it. That's reader response. The problem is you've got three different interpretations, and in, in either, either all of them are wrong, one of them's right, but you can't just have this attitude that we're going to... What they've done is saying the community of people is a higher authority than the written Scripture. They've put themselves over the, the Scripture. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Any group, any group or person that puts themselves in an authority over the Scripture is outside the bounds of Scripture. Okay? Whether that's Muhammad, whether that's Joseph Smith, whether that's the Pope. Inerrancy does not mean that the Bible provides definitive and exhaustive information on every topic. We wish it did. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Other issues related to Scripture, we'll go through these fairly quickly. Um, the Bible will endure for all time. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Um, Scripture is authoritative. It has the authority over our knives. It's the supreme and final authority. And testing claims about what is right and true. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Here's the, here's the thing I've said before many times. In, in our circles, we're not talking about cults. We're not talking about liberal emergent churches. We're not talking about wackos. We're talking about conservative Bible-believing churches. You get a room full of, of people like us, almost everybody's going to say, I believe the Bible's inspired and I believe the Bible's free from error. Would you agree? Almost everybody's going to say that, mostly. I mean, there would be a few people that may disagree with that, but for the most part. But a lot of people will give lip service to the authority of the Scripture, but they won't live like it. What do I mean by that? Oh, I believe the Bible's an authority for my life. But then they'll say, you know what? There's parts of the Bible I choose to not believe. I'll pick and choose which parts are good for me, and I won't live under the authority of all of it. And so you give lip service to the authority of Scripture. You give lip service to the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. But when the rubber meets the road, you're going to live however you want to make it convenient for you. And that's what I see really happening kind of in our circles. We give lip service to the importance of the Bible, but we really don't live under the authority of it. Um, let's talk about the transition, transmit, transmission of ancient documents. This is... Um, were the ancient manuscripts of the Bible transmitted accurately? Huge question. How many years are we talking? 
The last book in the New Testament is Revelation, and it was probably written about AD 95. Okay, so we're talking almost 1,900 years later, you have a leather-bound Bible, and it didn't just drop from the sky. There was a process of how these were transmitted. So, and I may be getting ahead of myself. I think I've already answered this question. The original documents are called autographs. All autographs of the biblical books have either been lost or destroyed, so we, we do not have any original copies today. You can't go into a museum and, or go into a, a library and find, like, 1 Thessalonians, the original document. If they've been destroyed or lost, all we have are copies. Now, that brings up a huge question. What's the question you guys would have? How do we know that what we have is just like the original? Wouldn't that, be a, wouldn't that be an accurate question that everybody should be asking? Well, how, how, do we, how, do we, how do I know I can trust the ESV or the NIV or the, or the King James? How can I trust that what I've got today, 2,000 years later, is as close to the original that there was? It's a very valid question. The process of comparing and studying these copies to get as close to the wording of the original is called textual criticism. Okay, so here's what you do. I don't have sheets of paper in here, but let me just maybe draw it on the board. Okay, so you've got... All right, since we're, since we're studying 1 Thessalonians on Sunday, this coming Sunday, let's say you've got 1 Thessalonians. This is the original. We don't have it. But we've got, let's say, just for the sake of argument, let's say we have four copies and these copies all come from different dates. Let's say this one's from A.D. 1 Thessalonians was probably written in 51 A.D. It's one of the earliest of Paul's, probably the second letter he wrote. Galatians is probably the first. So um, let's say we've got one from A.D. 100. We've got one from A.D. 80. We've got one from A.D. 110. And we've got one from A.D. 200. Okay, Just based upon time which one of these do you think is probably going to be the most accurate ad 80 why because it's the closest okay so what textual criticism does is it's going to compare all of these documents and see if there's any differences and if there's any differences between all of these then there's been some major changes over a Let's see, 80 to 200, over a 120-year period, there's been some major changes. So what they would say is, okay, what does it look like in 80-20? And let's compare the earliest one we have to one of the latest ones we have, and let's see how many changes there are. Does that make sense? And I'll answer it in just a moment here what the percentage is, okay? So remind me if I don't do that, because I think it's on your sheet here. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk about that in just a minute. That's a good question too. Let's talk about how the Old Testament was done, because it's even older. Oh, actually, I did. I did have it on there. It's on my notes. What, what percentage, do you guys, out of all the Bible, out of all these textual criticisms, what do you think the percentage is that what we have today is as closest to original without any change? Anybody want to take a guess? Ninety-eight percent. 
there's about an based upon the copies we have today most scholar most scholars will say that what we have today in your bibles is about 98% of what was original and the 2% that we don't do not affect anything in major doctrines or anything like that now let me show you like a text you guys want to can we take a little detour and show you guys a textual variant Okay, the most famous one is in Mark. Go to the ending of Mark. Yeah, go to Mark 16, and you'll come across these in your Bible. And you just need to be aware and not be scared of them and realize that your modern-day translators of your scriptures have helped you. And you, you didn't know that, you were, that what they're doing is they're doing, textual, they're doing a textual criticism here, textual variance, not textual criticism. They're, doing, they're looking at textual variance. Um, so look at Mark's ending. Look at, look at between Mark 16, 8 and 16, 9. Does yours have a footnote or a bracket or some type of statement in there? What does it say? Okay, some of the earliest manuscripts don't have that Mark and ending. So what does that tell you? Brings up a huge question. Is the last part of Mark supposed to be in the Bible or is it not supposed to be in the Bible? And why did your translators include it? You want to know my answer? I believe over the history of time, it's been included in the Bible and we should accept it as Scripture. But we should not build any major doctrine over something that's taught in here that does not correspond to any teachings elsewhere in the bible does that make sense so let's read it and see if there's anything in there that would correspond or not correspond to the rest of the bible that would come up with a with the belief system okay so let's look at um let's start with verse 14 afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed. Those who saw after him had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Is that corroborated in the other gospels? Okay, that's the Great Commission in Mark. Do we have any? Does that, is that fit with the rest of the scriptures? We're supposed to go into all creation, proclaim the gospel. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever is not believed will be condemned. Sort of, right? Be- believing in Jesus. But what does it say there? And is baptized now that almost makes it sound like you have to be baptized in order to be saved that's what the church of christ teaches okay verse 17 and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name they will cast out demons they will speak in new tongues they will pick up serpents with their hands they will drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover okay do we see casting out demons in the rest of the bible do we see speaking in tongues? Whether, whatever you agree about, whatever your view is not, do you see that in the rest of the Bible? Do you see people picking up serpents or drinking deadly poison? Do you see people laying hands on the sick? Okay. So there's some things there that are corroborated in the rest of the Bible, but there's two things that show up, drinking deadly poison and laying hands on serpents. Do you guys know of a denomination that's taken this and created a doctrine out of a spurious ending of Mark? You go down to the deep south, what do you have? The snake... Hank snake handling churches. So you have a whole sect of people that take snake handling seriously out of this passage of Scripture. So the ending of Mark is the only place in the Bible, the only other place that you would possibly see that is when Paul gets off his um, the shipwreck and he gets bitten by the snake and he lives. But it doesn't say that, you know, 
He went and picked up the snake like a snake handler. So what I think we should do is take the ending of Mark as Scripture, but realize that we don't want to build any theology out of what comes there in isolation. And you see people with the snake charming movement doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say that. The point is, is that older manuscripts didn't have this ending. And you have to ask the question, how did it get there? Did somebody, did a scribe add it in later on? And so you'll come across those. Another famous one is the um, John 8, the um, woman caught in adultery. Um... Look between 7 and 8, between chapter 7 and 8 in the Gospel of John. And, you, and this is more debatable. You may have five very conservative Christian scholars that would all say um, it shouldn't be in the Bible, it should be in the Bible, or um, you know, it's there and we can learn some stuff from it, but it's not inspired. <laughs> so, but anyway, what does it say there on your textual variant? The earliest manuscripts do not include 752 through 811. Okay? So these are what's called textual variants, which mean that because we don't have the original, all we have is copies. They've compared copies and have found, for example, that the earlier ones didn't include some stuff and the later ones did include stuff. So your Bible translators, and all of them have done this, have said, we're going to add it in because we found... We found a wide variety of documents that have both. To be on the safe side, we're going to add it in, and we're going to put a footnote saying that the earliest manuscripts did not include it. And when you look at those textual variants that are there, almost none of them deal with major issues of like that would like that would be heretical or would be you know doctrinally weird. Okay, does that does that make sense? Any questions before we go on? Like the rest of the scripture? No, like, his like mine, doesn't mine have don't that have that. Oh, yours doesn't have that reference. That's New King James. Huh. In, in Mark, even the Mark ending, it doesn't have that? Does yours have it in New King James? Did yours have it? Yours, King James, had it? This New King James? It could be the publisher. I don't see the MacArthur Study Bible. I'm surprised. Because actually, the best sermon on Mark's ending is from John MacArthur. John MacArthur preached. Um, a really good sermon on the Mark's ending, and um, I thought it was one of the best ones I've heard. I'm not sure why it's not in there. It could have just been a publisher's decision not to put it in there, but I'm not saying your Bible's effective because it's a MacArthur study Bible. You should be using it. But most Bibles should have those footnotes in there. Okay? Oh, it's in the footnotes. Is it in the footnotes yeah. down there? Okay. Yeah. yeah, in the study footnotes? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, very good. Don't put me on the spot. I'm sure there's disagreement between you and Dale 
Ben and John about some things. Mm. And I think I understand what you're asking. Your question is how do you how do you deal with differences of interpretation over scripture on these certain textual well, variants I mean, or just on any, on everything? The thing is that okay, here, there's a dividing line in my mind that says this is dogma. Were you here when I talked about dogma and doctrine and preferences? Like that, but trying to understand in reference to what you're talking about because it, it's also it's okay. interpretation okay. for you to okay. say here. Right, right. Here's, here's. Let me kind of give you some, some, my view. I believe that every passage of scripture has a specific meaning that the Holy Spirit intended. I don't know if we, with our human fallibility, can always determine what that is. So it's not the Holy Spirit's or the Scripture's problem; it's our problem. And so what you have to do then is say, okay. And there's times where I've been in sermon prep where I've come across a difficult passage of Scripture and it's been frustrating because I'll read five commentaries and they're like, I'll get a sheet of paper out. This guy believes this, this guy. And then you like tally up who, and like which side do you come down on? And at the end of the day, I'm like, you know what? I'm in the minority. And so you have to say at the end of the day, this is a very difficult passage of Scripture that's hard to interpret. And I'm giving my best guess. I'm fallible. It has a meaning. I just we will know, we'll know when we get to heaven. But I will say this: almost none of those times that I've come across those has it been an issue of like major theology or major doctrine. It's always been a secondary thing. That's kind of like in the grand scheme of things, who cares type thing. It's not like the Trinity, the Virgin Birth, the deity of Christ, the um, salvation by grace alone, those heaven, hell, those types of things. It's always been like a secondary thing. Um, so I think, when, and so I think the problem of interpretation is with us, not with the nature of Scripture. Because if the Holy Spirit inspired it, it has a meaning, and it's a fixed meaning. We just have to work hard to get to it. And at the end of the day, we might. And there's times where I preached. And you can go back maybe and listen. And I just remember. I don't remember exactly sermons, but I remember times from the pulpit saying. I'm not actually sure what this means, but here's my best guess, and I'm going to give it to you. And you go search it and study it. And, and, and so, you know, you do your homework, you look at what commentaries say, and at the end of the day, you just kind of have to say, you know what, this is a hard passage and we may not ever know. Like, for example, some stuff in First Peter. I remember when I preached the First Peter when he talks about preaching to the prison, spirits in prison and all that kind of stuff in the days of Noah. Or in Genesis chapter 6, the Nephilim, the sons of daughters, when the sons of men, and all that kind of stuff. So, I don't know. Well, the reason I say that is uh, I run into this over and over out of prison. And it's the kind of thing that I say, why? What is your interpretation as to why God allows almost some wiggle room and some things that seem pretty essential? I mean, I'll go in, okay, Calvin's are wrong, you know that. But the fact is that there it is, there's a difference of opinion among godly people, mm-hmm. and God clearly um, doesn't make some of this stuff definitive. I mean, he, he, he gives some wiggle room, which is, it, it almost seems strange to me. I think that, God, why would you allow some of this wiggle room that has caused such chaos throughout the ages in the church. I'm just wondering your interpretation. I would probably word it different. I don't know if God has allowed wiggle room. I think that, again, the scripture has a meaning. Right. And fallible, weak humans 
are having a hard time figuring it out. And sometimes baggage, tradition, and denomination are so entrenched in people that, that they're not willing to accept maybe what the truth is because it goes against what they've always believed growing up. Okay, you know, so and I'm not here to debate a particular doctrine, but it could be that, you know what, I grew up believing this my entire life because that's what my parents believed, that's what my church believed, that's what my pastor taught me, that's what I heard on radio preachers. And then, wow, this other preacher says, that's not what it means. And you're like, what? That, that's, that can't be right. And then you go and you start studying it and you're like, wait a minute. He may be right and I may be wrong. And I've got to be willing to submit myself to the scriptures. That it could be that everything I've learned growing up and this has been a tradition and not the truth. And I need to be willing to change if I'm wrong. And so I think everybody, that, that's why we need to always be, that's why Semper Reformanda, that's why we always need to be reforming, always need to be learning and being open to correction. Um, and there's times where I bet you, when I first came to Emmanuel, this, if I went back and listened to the sermons, some of the sermons, I don't know if my major views have changed, but I may have gone back and said, you know what, I probably would have, my view may have changed a little bit on that as I've grown in my understanding. Yes. All right, let's talk about the Old Testament. We're not going to get, what time is it? Are we going to get done tonight? Maybe. We'll, so the earliest manuscripts we have of the Old Testament were from the Leningrad Codex, 1008, up to a certain point, and the Aleppo Codex. So let's go back in time. What's the furthest back we go for the Old Testament? 900 AD, right? And those were based upon... The Hebrew text, now, obviously, by the time that Jesus was around, they mostly read from what was called the LXX, or the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So that's really like a lot of times when they quote the Scripture in the New Testament, they're quoting from the LXX, because in the Greek-speaking world, that's what they were, most of them didn't know Hebrew. Okay, So the Hebrew, actual Hebrew Old Testament, the earliest codex and a codex was almost like a book the earliest old testament you know like the closest that we would have to a to a bible bound book was from 900 a.d which is pretty far back right okay these were used to translate the old testament all the way up until 1947 you may say well what happened in 1947 so from 900 to 1947 how many years are we talking here like a thousand, I don't know how to do the math. A lot of thousand, a lot of years, okay? So the King James Version, all these versions that came out. So for over a thousand years, this was the standard codex that we were using to translate the Old Testament until 1947. You may say, well, what in the world happened in 1947? Well, a little shepherd boy was in the Dead Sea area, was playing in the caves. He threw a rock in a cave. And these pots shattered, and they went in and they found the, what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Major, major find. Now, when they dated the Dead Sea Scrolls, what date did they go back to? 8050 to 250 BC. Okay, so from 900 AD all the way back to 250, that's another thousand years. So, what's the question? What would you question you would be asking? What we have in 1947, does it at all match what we had back in 250 B.C.? Because these are the oldest. 
do these compare? The 900 AD to the... And so what they did was they went back and they compared all those. And here's what they found. They found portions of all the Old Testament except Esther and Nehemiah. So we're talking huge, not just like a few sections here, but almost the entire Bible. And so here's what happened. When you laid down the Leningrad Codex copies next to the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found no difference. Isn't that amazing? So what does that tell you? God and His sovereignty over these thousands of years preserved the copying of the Old Testament to what we had even in our generation. Like my parents were born in 1948, so even some of you were even born before that. In our generation, what we have has, is no different than the oldest manuscripts that were found of the Old Testament. So it tells us, number one, even if we didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls, it would tell us that we were on track. But the Dead Sea Scrolls was probably the major find of the 20th century to affirm the authority of the Old Testament, that the process they used to transmit the, the text had been accurate all these years. So when people talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, now you know like why it's so important. Okay? Let's talk about the New Testament. The copying process for a thousand years was meticulous and accurate. Okay, in the New Testament, there are no original manuscripts, but we do have 5,752 ancient manuscripts. That's a lot. That's more than most books at that time. Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey that were written even before the New Testament, how many copies, original copies do you think are, there's no originals of, the, of Homer either, but how many copies do you think there are of those? A couple hundred. So sheer volume, what, what does the volume of those texts help us with? Accuracy. Because if you have volume, if you had like one or two, any type of science, the more, that you, the more samples you have to study, the higher the probability that you're going to see an accurate transmission. So to have 5,752 copies is amazing. And the oldest existing manuscript that we have of the New Testament is, is called the John Rylands Fragment. It comes from 130 A.D. So if the last book of the New Testament, and John was the last gospel written, but let's say Revelation was written in 95 A.D., the earliest one copy we have is 130 A.D. So we're talking... Roughly 45 to 50 years after the originals, at least the last of the originals. So, so really, when we talk about the time frame between the originals and the copies, we're talking about 100 years. But look how many copies we have. And again, we realize that when we've got the when scholars look at what we've got today, again, it comes out to about 98% accurate. Let's talk about canonization. So we're going to go out and shoot our cannons, right? That's not what I mean. Question. Here's another question. Because this is where the cults get weird as well. Who determined what books should be included in the Bible in what order? Why is Matthew first and not Mark? Why is Romans before First Thessalonians? How come Second Maccabees is not in your Bible? How come the Gospel of Hermas or the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas are not in your Bible? The Gnostic Gospels. 
So the, book, the word canon means the closed list of books. So when you hear the, clo- the, the term the closed canon, it means that the Bible is complete. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the complete Bible. It's closed. You can't add to it. You can't subtract to it. It's the, the, the total list of books that God wanted in the Bible in the order that he wanted them in that are inspired. The early church father Athanasius was the first person to use the Greek word canon to refer to Christianity's inspired. Now, here's a clear, here's a clear distinction I want to make in wording. The canon is not an authorized collection of writings that a church conferred upon the scriptures to authenticate them. You understand what I'm saying? It wasn't at the council of Nicaea where the men came and said, we're putting our stamp of approval and we're saying this is scripture. It's not what they're doing. Because who's the authority there? Men are the authority saying, we're, we're making this scripture. We're deciding this is scripture. That's not what the canonization process meant. Instead, the canon was already, was already a collection of inspired writings on their own with inherent authority. What they did was they just came together out of a mass geographic area and recognized what they had already believed in the first place and made it codified or made it out there and defined and articulated what they had already believed. Think about it this way. Let me draw a map up here. It's going to be a really bad map, but let's just draw a map. So let's say, okay, so here's Spain. Here's Italy. We'll boot. Here's Greece, Crete or whatever over here. Here's, here's Palestine, Israel. Come down here, Saudi Arabia. Here's Northern Africa. Here's, yeah, so here's Spain. Here's Rome, here's Ephesus, here's Greece, here's Israel, here's modern-day Turkey, Um, here's Alexandria, Um, and here's the Arabian Desert, okay? Now, where did Christianity start? It started in Jerusalem, right? And where did it spread? Book of Acts, okay, went okay, to Antioch and then Paul on all his missionary journeys. It went all over the place, okay? So let's say the year's 300 A.D. You've had basically 250 years of the expansion of the church, and you have a church in Alexandria. You have some churches in the Arabian Desert. You have some churches in Palestine. You have some churches up like the seven churches in Ephesus. You've got Philippi. You've got all these churches over here. You've got churches, churches all over the known world. And what are these churches? There's no Internet, there's no plane travel. How are these groups going to, like, what's the church in Alexandria doing? They've gotten copies of the Bible, and what are they doing? They're reading the Bible, and they're reading sermons from people preaching. And they are, in their little Alexandrian world, saying, this is inspired writing, and we believe this is the Bible. Do they have any idea what the people over in Israel are believing about it? No. Do they have any idea what the people in Ephesus are believing about it? Okay, something very important happens at A.D. 3.15. The Edict of Milan is where Constantine made Christianity the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now you could have these synods or these councils 
where they would meet and people from all over the world, two or three hundred, would come together. And what do you think they would realize when they came together? We all have been believing the same thing all these years with the same scriptures in totally different geographic areas. Hey, we're not the ones giving the authority of these scriptures. These scriptures have authority on their own. We're just coming together and realizing that we've all been believing the same thing around the world. And then they come up with the Council of Nicaea and say, this is what we believe about what the scripture already is. Does does that make sense? So it's already an authoritative listing. Okay? Old Testament, 39 books were written between 1400 and 430 BC. We do not have a detailed description from history about how this process was done. By the time of Jesus, most Jews were in agreement to the canon of the Old Testament, which is the same as what we have today. The the Bible that Jesus read, the canon that Jesus read in his day is the same Bible we have today of the Old Testament. Most Jews were in agreement. So, Jesus affirmed the canon of Scripture in Luke 24, 44. Since Jesus and his apostles affirm the Old Testament canon is closed and authoritative, as his followers, we have no choice but to do the same. Josephus, the Jewish historian during Jesus' day, claimed that the Jewish canon, which matches our Old Testament, had been settled from the time of the Persian king Artaxerxes from 465 to 423 B.C. Now, I'm going to just try to see how much time we have here. Um, I'm going to... Skip down to the Apocrypha. Is that okay? You you guys have your notes there. I'm just for the sake of time. Because the Apocrypha is what the Roman Catholics have in their Bible. If you have a Roman Catholic Bible, you've got a book, you have a set of books that are in between the Old Testament and New Testament that they call the Apocrypha. Why don't we have them in ours? You ever asked that question? Why does the why does the Catholic Bible different than the Protestant Bible? You guys heard of the Apocrypha or the apocryphal writings? It's the, it's the it's the list of writings in between the Old and New Testament that the Catholic the Catholics use. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, the, uh, the Apocrypha. Roman Catholics and Eastern or- Eastern Orthodox churches recognize the Apocrypha as holy scripture, while Protestants do not. Why? Okay, first of all, the Apocrypha includes books written by Jews in the 500 year period between the Old and New Testaments. Why do Protestants not consider them as Scripture? Let me give you four reasons. Number one, the Jews who authorized the books never accepted them into their canon. So by Jesus' day, they were not part of the canon. So even, even the Jewish people who during Jesus' day that, that determined or recognized the Old Testament, they didn't include it in there. Secondly, it contains some factual errors, historical errors, which denies inerrancy, and some theological errors such as purgatory and praying for the dead that you don't find anywhere else in the other parts of Scripture. And you may not know this, the Roman Catholic Church did not officially recognize them until the Council of Trent in 1546. Jerome, who was the first (coughs) Latin translation of the Bible that was used by the Roman Roman 
Catholic Church for a thousand years didn't consider them to be inspired scripture. And then here's probably the most important. Nowhere do we find any New Testament authors quoting the Apocrypha Scripture while almost every Old Testament book is quoted in the New Testament as Scripture. Is the canon closed? Can you add books to the Bible? I want to spend some time on this because this is where cults and world religions go off the rails. Anytime you have a person go into a cave, get a dream, and come out with a new religion, you have the beginning of a world religion or cult. It happened to Muhammad. It happened to Joseph Smith. Here's what's happened. For some reason, the Bible alone is not enough. There's got to be something added to it. We don't, we, we don't like a closed canon, so let's add to it, whether it's the Book of Mormon, whether it's the, whether it's the whatever. Now, today, you don't necessarily have most evangelical Christians adding to the Bible, but do you ever hear people say things like this? God told me, dot, 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 and they say something. Now, we can debate this issue tonight, or we can not debate it, but some people may unwittingly be adding to the Scripture, not knowing that they're adding to the Scripture, by saying God told them and then speaking for God. Does that make sense? Um, it's more in the word faith movement where people stand up and they give first-person prophecy and they begin to speak you know, for God. Um, so anyway, the, the canon is closed, all 66 books. Do you guys, in the time remaining, I've given you a whole history there of the English Bible. And did we do this before in this class once, I think? I'm trying to remember. Um, let's, let's, go, let's just do this. This is interesting. This is a little bit of history, but it goes through the, the, the printing of the English, English Bible. And we'll talk about translations. While not written in English, the Latin Vulgate from the word common was translated by Jerome around 400 A.D. and was used for almost a 1,000 years in the English-speaking world, world until John Wycliffe. You ever heard of the Wycliffe Bible translators? It's from John Wycliffe. So the first non-Hebrew and Greek Bible was what's called the Vulgate, and it was written in Latin. If you don't speak Latin, can you understand the Bible? If you go to a service and all they do is speak in Latin, can you understand the Bible? If you're a British peasant working out in your field and you go to the church in the cathedral and the priest stands up and preaches in Latin, are you going to understand what he's saying? So what can the priest do? He can say whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants and say, this is what God says. And you, at that point in history, you don't question it because this is God's word. I don't understand a word the guy's saying, but he's a priest, so it must... And that's how they could oppress people. That's how the Roman Catholic Church could oppress people because the English-speaking people didn't have access to what the Bible said. They did have a Bible in most villages, one Bible, and it was chained to the town square so you couldn't remove it, and it was written in Latin. But people didn't have Bibles in their homes. The whole idea of having a Bible in your home was foreign to, to them. Okay, in 1382... John Wycliffe 
translated the entire Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate. Okay, so he didn't go back to the original Greek and Hebrew. He went back just to Jerome's translation in the Latin. This copy was by hand because there was no printing press. Can you believe that? He copied the entire Bible by hand from Latin into English. One, I don't know if he had helpers, but one, that's why the Wycliffe translators are a huge organization that goes in and translates the Bible to unreached people groups. There's still unreached people groups out there in missions that don't have the Bible in their language. So the Wycliffe, that they're named after John Wycliffe. In 1414, reading the English Bible became punishable by death. And as a symbolic way to dishonor Wycliffe, of the Roman Catholic Church exhumed his body and burned it at the stake for heresy. They waited till after he was dead. They, buried his, they, they, they exhumed his buried body, and as a point to say this is not going to happen, they, they, burned his, they burned him at the stake as a heretic, even after he was dead. Okay? In 1562... William Tyndale published the first printed New Testament. Okay, so in time here, this is a very important, this is probably one of the most important ones because two things. Number one, it was the first printed Bible because it was from the printing press, which means what? We can get it out. It's easier to print printing press than to copy, right? So we can disseminate the Bible more, more readily. <clears throat> but number two, why was it important? It was translated from the original Greek. It went back to the original language. It was just the New Testament, though. It wasn't based on Jerome's translation, and Jerome got a few things wrong. It went back to the original language. The first completed English Bible, the entire Bible, appeared in 1535, um, called, I don't think the date's right on that, because um, it would be later in time. One of those two dates is wrong. It was called the Coverdale Bible because it was published by Miles Coverdale, Tyndale's associate. I've got my dates wrong. In 1536, Tyndale was captured by Henry VIII's men and was strangled and burned at the stake. Do you know what his last words were when he was dying at the stake? Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And here's the sad irony of William Tyndale. One year later, the, the king officially licensed the distribution of the English Bible. So a year after his death. But God opened the eyes of the King of England. Now, do you know anything about the Tudor family? Henry VIII had some weird, I mean, he had a lot of wives, but one of his daughters, Mary, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, Catherine of Aragon was, was, was Henry's first wife, devout Catholic from Spain. Their daughter, Mary, grew up devout Catholic. When she became Queen of England, she wanted to eradicate all Protestants. That's why she's called Bloody Mary. Do you know why she's called Bloody Mary? Because she killed Protestants. She, her reign was very bloody. Um, and so in 1539, Coverdale's Great Bible became the largest because of its larger pages. It became the standard. This is the most important because it was the first English translation authorized to be read in the official Church of England. But during the reign of Mary I, Bloody Mary, Henry VIII's devoutly Catholic daughter, many Protestants fled England to places like Geneva, in Switzerland. William Winningham, an English exile in Geneva, completed the popular Geneva Bible in 1560. This was actually superior to the Great Bible in accuracy of translation. So there was an exodus of, think about, if you go back and look at church history, almost always those that stand up for evangelical conservative Christianity are always persecuted. 
even in England, they had to flee to Switzerland to get away from the reign of Bloody Mary. Now, fast forward, she had a short reign because basically she was too bloody. Um, in 1604, King James the first authorized a new translation of the, <coughs> of the entire Bible. And in 1611, we have what's called the authorized version or the original King James version. Those that are King James only staunch King James people, they won't even call it the King James Bible. What will they call it? The authorized version. Because it was authorized by King James as the anointed only Bible translation. So that's a huge date in history. The 1611, the King... So think about how many years until modern translations. 1611 to about 1940s. For almost 400 years, 300 years, the King James Version was the standard in the English-speaking world. Um, but, I don't know if you've known this, but the King James Version has undergone many revisions. 1629, 1638, 1729, 1971, it's probably the most accurate to the original Greek and Hebrew of modern translations because it, used, it went back to the oldest manuscripts. I think the NASB is probably the most accurate, but it's the hardest to read. I call it the Yoda translation. And the reason why it's the Yoda translation is because, you know how Yoda speaks, um, it takes a Greek sentence and makes it sound in English the way it sounds in Greek, which sometimes doesn't flow. Away, you put your weapon. You know, it's not, we say put your weapon away. Okay, so sometimes when you read the New American Standard, you're like, that sounds a little weird. That's because it's translated literally from the Greek. Now, that's, that's excellent. I mean, if you want the most accurate translation, probably the New American Standard Bible is the most accurate. Sometimes it's just a little hard to read because it doesn't give you a, flu, a smooth, free-flowing translation. Um, Textus Receptus. People are like, what's the Texas Receptus? Sounds like something in Texas. No, it means the received text. King James only advocates claim that the received text or the Texas Receptus are superior to the Alexandrian texts that are used by modern translations, such as the New American Standard, the ESV, and the NIV. I don't want to get into a lot of this, but there are two types of um, text, text fonts and sources that... The King James only people believe, see, like the Alexandrian texts are older. So the New American Standard, the NIV, the ESV, they go back when they do their translation to those older manuscripts. And why would they do that? Because they want to be more accurate. The King James only say, the radical King James only people will say, those texts are corrupt. 
the only text that you need to be translating from is from the received text, the Textus Receptus. And so what we're doing is we're going to um, go from the, the received text because it's, it's actually anointed by God. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I, I like the King James Version because I grew up you know, quoting that and learning from that. I don't think there's anything wrong with the King James Version, as a matter of fact. Um, there is one area that you'll see something. Inter- who has, a, who has a, the actual King James version of the Bible on them? Turn to John, or maybe New King James. Turn to First John, and let's go to um, yeah, First John five seven through eight. First John five seven through eight. And this is a big debate where here's what King... This, there's a huge difference between the King James Version and the other translations here. And this is where the King James only people will say, you guys are liberal because you don't believe something. Okay? So, you guys look at 1 John 5. What did I say? 1 John... Is it 7 through 8? I think so. Let me see. Yeah, 1 John 5. All right, so somebody read. I'll read it. I'll read in the ESV. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So what? Spirit, water, and what? Does somebody have something different than that? What does the King James say? Okay. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Now, is there anything wrong with that? That's the Trinity, right? We would never deny the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But does that text in John use those words or does it use these words? The original, the oldest manuscripts use the Spirit, the water, and the blood. The King James adds the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit because it's a kind of a confusing verse. I don't know exactly what it means. But here's what the King James only people will do, the, the real radical ones. They'll say, listen, you guys that use those modern translations like NIV and ESV, you guys have just denied the Trinity. You're anti-Trinitarian and you're heretics because you have your translations don't teach the Trinity. Now, is that true? No, it's just in that one particular verse, our translations have gone off the oldest manuscripts, whereas the King James has added that doesn't mean that we deny the Trinity. It just means we're trying to be, these translations are trying to be as accurate to the original language as that. Probably what happened was when they came to the King James Bible, whoever was translating had no idea what that meant and said, that's too confusing. It makes more sense to use the Father, the whole, we know the Trinity, so let's just add that in instead of that. That's probably what happened. I don't know. That's why you got a difference there. Um, now, Let's get to the most modern translations, and I think we're going to run out of time. In 1978, the New International Version was published, which has become the most popular and dominant translation in the last 30 years. Okay? And then the newest one, and probably the most, one, another more reliable translation, is the English Standard Version, which was published in 2001. That's the one I use. And I used the NIV for a long time, and I still use the NIV in my own personal 
worship and quiet time. I just like, I think the ESV has the accuracy of the New American Standard, but flows a little bit better. And so that's why I do that. Let's just talk in the last five minutes. We have types of translations. You've got your what's called word for word or formal equivalent. These are trying to get as close to the original grammar and language as possible. Examples of this are the New American Standard, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the English Standard Version, Holman Christian Standard Bible. So if you want the most literal word for word, those are your the New American Standard, King James, New King James, ESV, Holman Christian Standard Bible. The next type of translations are what they call dynamic equivalent or thought for thought. Um, this tries to um, convey the same, la- the same meaning but maybe is not as concerned about doing it in the exact wording as trying to get the overall thought of the passage and try to make it more free-flowing so modern audiences can understand it. And examples of this would be the NIV, this is the most popular, and the New Living Translation. So the NIV is an accurate translation, but you need to understand the NIV is not a word-for-word translation. Now, there's the 2011 NIV, and that may be the one you were talking about earlier, Brent. The 2011 NIV has made some major changes to be more gender, gender, what's the word, um, gender neutral in their Bible. And to, um, they've made some editorial, they, they, they've, like when it talks about women in leadership, where, you know, Peter, Tim, Paul says to Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That's in the Bible. Um, they've changed the wording of that to bring it to, to, to where it's not, doesn't say that. Um, and so there's been, they've just kind of changed it a little bit. And so um, some people have a major problem with the new, the new NIV and, um, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's a dynamic equivalent. Now, paraphrase. This is usually not a translation, but it's one person's attempt to give a modern language version. Uh, this would be like the Message or the Living Bible. Don't ask Don about that. Don't ask Don's opinion about the Message. <coughs> so, um, sorry, I put you on the spot there. But the, let me just talk about the um, the Message is is translate is is a paraphrase by one man, Eugene Peterson. NIV, ESV, King James, New American Standard, they have translation committees. You can go on their websites or go in the front of your Bible, and it will tell you who was on the translation committee. And the translation committee is from all different denominations. And they've got a cross-section of denominations and a cross-section of scholars so that, excuse me, there's no denominational bias. So they got their best experts in each book of the Bible to write, regardless of denomination, so that they could have a a, a um, bias-proof translation committee, and they had to have checks and balances when they brought that when they brought the translation out. Paraphrases are just one guy's kind of opinion, and then corrupt translations. Um, we don't have time to go into this, but like obviously the Book of Mormon and Jehovah's Witness Watchtower. Let's just turn to John one one. We'll close on this tonight. Um, John one one famous passage of scripture and all of your translations are going to have it accurate they've translated it literally Um, and this is speaking of jesus so john uses the word word in all capital logos to speak of jesus in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god what does that teach us about jesus he's god he's eternal he is god jehovah's witnesses you want to know how they translate it 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, lowercase g. Huge difference. What are they saying? Jesus is not eternal, and he is a God created by the Father, Jehovah. So they've imported their corrupt theology into their translation to come up with a corrupt translation. Um, so when you start talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, they're very skilled at knowing what Bible verses to go to that they're trained with. But um, there's some tricks that you can show them scriptures and their own scriptures that refute what they believe because they haven't been taught to go there. And then you throw them off. So, um, <laughs> yeah. How many of you have had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door? Recently, Mormon missionaries. Okay, work with them. You work with Mormons. So here's where we're going, guys. Um, we're going to look at some major doctrines. So, for example, like what what do they believe? About, what do we believe about God? Like the Trinity, God. What do other groups believe about God? The Trinity, Jesus, His humanity, His deity. What do they believe about that? Uh, the nature of of man is like Mormons believe that you know God was an exalted man and will become exalted gods one day and have our own planet. Things like that. What do they believe about sin? What do, they believe, what do we believe about salvation, about heaven and hell, about end times? All the major doctrines, we're going to look at what we believe as evangelical Orthodox Christians, and then we're going to just kind of side-by-side side compare what the other groups believe. But I wanted to start tonight with the Scripture because I think it's important that everything that we study from here on out is revealed to us in, in a Scripture alone, not, not any other addition to it. So. Um, 